Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Change. One of the first things I noticed when I first discovered behavioral science was that when I gave talks about marketing and advertising, I got invited to marketing and advertising conferences. When I started talking about behavioral economics, I got invited to 10 Downing Street. Welcome to episode two of Obehave. I'm Julia. I'm Maddie. And we're behavioral researchers at Ogilvy Change and co-hosts of this podcast. On today's episode, we're talking about persuasion, the practice of getting people sympathetic to your message before they experience it. Persuasion titles the latest book by the father of influence, Dr. Robert Cialdini, New York Times bestselling author, president and CEO of Influence at Work, and former Regents Professor of Psychology and Marketing at Arizona State University. As one of the most cited social psychologists of our time, Robert Cialdini is renowned for his research on the psychology of influence. On today's episode, Rory Sutherland, Vice Chairman of Ogilvy and May the UK, joins Dr. Robert Cialdini in conversation about persuasion. This followed Dr. Cialdini's captivating talk at the London Ogilvy office in Sea Containers, part of a series of overhaved talks on behavioural science. Dr. Cialdini starts by describing an experiment demonstrating how asking people to make a decision can have a spectacularly path-dependent effect on the decision they actually make. Here's an example that I love. Um, Market researchers approached individuals out uh, on the streets and asked them to participate in an extended uh, interview regarding their attitudes toward music. They uh, declined because there was no compensation for it in the majority of cases. Only uh, 29% agreed. But if the market researcher preceded the request with a persuasive question, do you consider yourself a helpful person? Almost all of them thought for a second and agreed. Yes, I am And helpful. then, when the marketer said, could you help us with this survey, 77% agreed to participate. So we go from 29% to 77% by focusing people on their helpfulness asking them to retrieve instances in which they were of assistance and they then consider the idea of helping as congruent with who they are. I think there's a wonderfully famous bit of example with advertising, isn't there, which is that the same advertisement was tested with two different, the same product, in fact it was a theme park, wasn't it, I think, and a museum. A museum, the proposition was not very many people go here, it's an exclusive kind of place, and this place is universally and widely popular. And the second strategy, appealing to social proof, was more powerful when that advertisement appeared after a horror film. And the first one, where you were trying to make yourself more distinguished and distinctive by going there, was much more effective when it appeared after a romantic comedy. Exactly. So the kind of, it almost... It almost brings back, this, I think it's Robert Kurtzman, you probably know at the University of Pennsylvania. He almost has this model of the brain that it's a little like an iPhone, that it has certain apps running in the background. And then you almost have to open a particular app for a particular mode of thinking or decision making. Yes. And so some of these little persuasive cues are almost like, right, let's open the helpfulness app and then we might actually get some helpfulness. Yeah. But it requires a little bit of a, 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 a jig 
or a you know a tiny little cue just to get people into that particular mode of behavior. Yeah, I like the analogy of uh, a light activated mechanism. If we shine the light on that mechanism, it starts to whir. It starts to work. That's what attention. And does. attention essentially it, it, it kicks is, in, is causes to kick yeah. in the kind of mental modes right. that are then effectively congruent right. with the, with what we're paying attention to. Which makes great sense evolutionarily. It does. Yeah. Where we pay attention should be the thing that activates us to behave in ways that are uh, congruent with that uh, that focus of attention. A very interesting point you also made, which is that. Um, the press may be very ineffective at changing our minds, but by determining where our attention is spent, it does a very powerful job of effectively deciding what's important to us. Right. So those things which receive a lot of coverage because we, in some ways, not necessarily through our own choice, but through the choice of an editor, pay a large amount of attention to that, um, that that becomes, by definition, then important. That's right. It because we are led to pay attention to that particular factor, we presume that it warrants our attention, and that's a mistake. It doesn't always, if we are drawn to that particular factor by a communicator. Now, an interesting one you raise is that, you know, if you prime people or prompt them, whatever yeah, yeah. vocabulary you use, to think about a purchase decision in terms of price, they will become more price sensitive. If you prompt them to pay attention to quality, they become less price sensitive and more quality sensitive. Yes. I mean, that might have interesting implications, or at least suggest there are some interesting tests you could run in terms of how much prominence you give to discounting on the shelf. Now, obviously, if you're going to discount products, it makes sense to have the information somewhere. Yeah. Otherwise, the discount will have no effect. But if you actually have an aisle which advertises savings very noisily at various points of a shopper's aisle, you are pretty much encouraging those people walking down that aisle who may have been perfectly content to pay a little bit more for more quality before they entered the aisle to make them essentially to educate them to become highly sensitized to price. Right. So something which is intended to advertise savings <laughs> could in fact have you know, a distorting effect on people's preferences. I like that insight. I think that's quite perceptive. I don't think it's an interesting question, which is any store where, you know, the greatest noise in store refers to discounts is essentially creating bargain seekers yeah. among the people who are trawling those aisles. Yeah. So that, that, that's something I think, I think we might be able to get someone to fund that experiment yeah. because, yeah. The, you know, the consequences, if we're right, might be quite significant. Yeah. And counterintuitive. Yeah, and counterintuitive. I mean, there, there's an interesting one we have, which was a client coming to us, uh, with a particular food product, a biscuit, where they had reduced the fat content um, and sales had plummeted. And even though in independent tests no one could tell the difference particularly between the lower fat and the older higher fat variant, nonetheless um, the sales fell when they, that they changed the formulation. And we said to them immediately, you didn't put now with lower fat on the packaging. And they said, well, obviously. You know, why wouldn't you? We've just put a considerable amount of effort into making this a lower-fat product. Why would we not tell people? Now, it's perfectly plausible that that actually ruins the perceived taste of the product the, by focusing right. their attention on something other than the enjoyment. Than of the, the enjoyment, that's right. 
So you've oh, distracted because people from a single mindedness. Yeah. That healthy food is less exactly. tasty. Food. Yeah, which with some with some justification. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're right. And so so and likewise, I've heard the same thing that people assume that eco-friendly cleaning products are less efficacious. Yes. Yeah. So actually, the way to do this is to actually bring in. I mean, it, again, this is counterintuitive. You might bring in the environmental benefits and add them to the product without actually telling anyone. Yes. Yes. Um, and they won't notice any difference in efficacy. There probably isn't one. But the very act, fact that you make noise out of that will just cause them to... I mean, this is the extraordinary thing about perception, I suppose, which is that from every bit that comes in from our senses, there are more bits being retrieved from past experience. So we don't really see the the contemporary world in an objective sense anyway, do we? It's, it's based on past expectation and uh, and so forth. Exactly. So it's a it's a very it raises huge questions for economics yeah. because economics is predicated on the idea that we have perfect information and that there's this sort of notion of value or utility which is independent of the perception of the consumer. Right. right. And that's so far from the truth; it's right. almost unimaginable. Yes. So I mean, do, do you do you get hostility? How do we economists react to these findings, or do they just wave them away and pretend they aren't there? For a long time, they wave them away. They can't any longer because some of their laureates are are acting and and thinking in ways that are congruent with this way of um, understanding the world and, and human behavior. So it's not dismissible any longer. It has to be accommodated within. Uh, the theorizing, the thinking of economists. And so I'm finding much more re receptivity to these notions. It's interesting because economists and finance people have always historically hated marketing. And they see it as a cost, not as a source of value creation, mm. because their belief is that there is an objective measure of value, of which, of course, consumers have perfect information and perfect trust. Right. And therefore, they can't help but have a fantasy perfect world of efficiency where marketing is unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And they see it, therefore, as a cost. What, what this implies, interestingly, I think, is that you could actually generate almost out of nothing a surprising amount of economic value just by getting someone to pay attention to a different aspect of whatever it is they're buying or using. Your story uh, regarding... Uh the uh, the Japanese restaurant is a perfect example. Yeah, I'll tell that now just yes, for the benefit please. of the podcast. It's, it's a terrific In Wangamama, I've told this before, when you go in, it's a, a Japanese noodle chain uh, in the UK, and they'll say, have you ever been to Wangamama before? And if you want to amuse yourself, just say no. And they will immediately say, what you need to understand is it's based on an authentic Japanese noodle bar where the food arrives fresh and hot straight from the kitchen, but not necessarily in the order you would expect. So they flipped your attention then from random food arrival to fresh and hot. And so it occurred to me that the whole restaurant chain might have failed without that sentence because half the people who visited for the first time would be thinking, I'm personally insulted. I, mean, I, I ordered this duck gyoza as a starter and it arrived with my coffee. I mean, the whole place is totally incompetent. The people don't know what they're doing. But instead, I see that this is now intentional, authentically Japanese, and I'm concentrating on how fresh and hot the food is. And the same thing, which would have been a downright curse in the absence of this persuasion, suddenly becomes a positive benefit. So the fact that you can synthesize value simply by the judicious use of a phrase or two, is, it should be economically very exciting indeed, I think.
it is, it's got me enthusiastic about the possibilities that this uh, opens up for us. So I'm, I'm, I, I am genuinely uh, great, enthusiastic There's a great Ludwig von Mises quote, and he was more right than he realized. Because, of course, the Austrian school of economics always took value to be subjective. And so he said, there's no, there's no meaningful distinction to be made in a restaurant between the value created by the man who cooks the food and the value created by the man who sweeps the floor. And by the man who sweeps the floor, he really meant marketing and advertising. And his point is one person creates the food, the other one creates the environment and context in which it's possible best to enjoy the food. So we really need to look at actual value creation as being a twofold process. There's the thing itself, whatever the Kantian phrase is, das Ding or something or other, and then there's the manufacturing of the way of looking at it, which makes the thing most appealing. Exactly. Uh, Not long ago, I was approached at my door by someone who was soliciting contributions to um, a childhood after-school education program. And I hadn't ever heard of this program. He presented (laughs) no credentials. I had no sense that this was anything other than I was giving him money uh, for his own pocket. But I gave him more money than I normally give to charities. And it was because of what he did first. He brought his seven-year-old daughter with him. And I was focused on children. Of course. And now, the program for children after school is much more important in my mind than it had been earlier. It focused me on something that I cared about and made everything work in his behalf as a consequence. And the man who sweeps the floor. Exactly that. Thank you very much, Robert. It's been an absolute joy hosting you here. Thanks so much and see you again soon, I hope. I enjoyed it, Rory. So, that's the end of episode two. Many thanks to both Dr. Robert Cialdini and Rory Sutherland for their fascinating insights into persuasive messaging and its economic value. If you were interested by today's episode and want to learn more about the psychology of influence, make sure to check out Cialdini's latest book, Presuasion, A Revolutionary Way to Influence and Persuade, available on Amazon now. You can also check out our blog at obehave.tumblr.com. That's o-b-e-h-a-v-e.tumblr.com. For those of you familiar with the original Obehave newsletter, we've moved the articles online and will continue to post about the latest research and insight from the field. You can also follow us on Twitter at OglebyChange and like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash OglebyChange. And finally, we'd like to thank our sponsor Sound Lounge, enabling advertisers to use music in more powerful ways. Special thanks to Ruth Simmons for introducing us to the world of sound branding and Julian Goodkind for managing the music origination and production for this show. Thanks for listening.